This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Let's go back in time to 1932 as Converse brings you historic footage of the legendary original Celtics with whom all great professional teams are compared. We have now taken over your radio. Richie Guerin is about to show you the most important step in getting past a man. It's the first one. An Oscar will inbound it. The men in green, the Milwaukee Bucks, that's Al Cinder against Bellamy. Anderson has Jordan. Allen shakes free. Gets two! Gilmore. to go in the first quarter for the Cow Palace. Here's Barry. Jordan. Open. Chicago with the lead. Hello and welcome to the Over and Back NBA podcast. This is Jason Mann and with me as always is Rich Krejci. Rich, great to be back with you. Yeah, absolutely. This is uh, unfortunately one that we've sort of we, we've gotten into rhythm sometimes of when major you know you know NBA deaths happen that we we cover it. But I, I think I like that because it's it's it allows us to kind of go back and look at the careers and and we had this idea planned uh, about two weeks ago when when the news of Jerome Kersey's death came out and we had a we were saying okay you know we're gonna watch a full you know Blazers versus Celtics game we're gonna talk about how Jerome what he did in this and we're gonna do it a different way and then unfortunately we had two other deaths that also happened big NBA deaths so unfortunately we're just gonna kind of do a uh touch on three careers here instead of just just one fun look at at Jerome Kersey it's unfortunately gonna be a few more uh few more people we have to look at but yeah because um because after that uh february 28th anthony mason died um at only 48 years old and then a uh, couple of days before that a pioneer the um the first uh, black player in nba history by a day but still you know an important achievement uh, earl lloyd so uh so we're gonna look at a little bit at all three of them um I, first, Earl Lloyd. Not, I mean, you know, that that obviously was the primary thing that he was known for in his career. It was October thirty first, nineteen fifty, and he joined uh, Chuck Cooper with the uh, Celtics and Nat Sweetwater Clifton um, with the Knicks as the uh, the first three players to, to uh, break the color line. He happened to be first because of how um, scheduling uh, worked out for him, but um, he. Um, Actually, only played seven games that season with uh, the now defunct Washington Capitals. Uh, he ended up taking a year off to be in the military, and then uh, spent uh, six seasons with the bulk of his career with the Syracuse Nationals. They won the uh, NBA title in '55, and uh, he um, uh, became uh, one of the first. Uh, that was the first season he and a, and a teammate. I'm blanking on who his teammate was right now, but they were the first uh, t- uh, black players to win NBA championships. So uh, that, of course, Adolph Shays was the uh, was the key player for the Nationals during mm-hmm. that time. And he, but he was definitely a complimentary player um, 
was known uh, in his New York Times obituary, talked about how he was a strong rebounder and was so tenacious on defense that he sometimes guarded uh, George Mikan, who was 6'10", even though he was only 6'6". And um, he uh, was also a pioneer as coaching. He was the uh, first uh, black assistant coach with the Pistons and um, was the fourth, uh, later the fourth black head coach in history and the first um, coach who was not also a player. So the first three black player coaches, black coaches were all player coaches, Mm -hmm. and he was the first who was just, you know, it was after his career, he was just a a bench coach, as it was referred to. Which is pretty remarkable when you think about it. Yeah. So I mean, it's really cool. Like, (laughs) you know, like that, that's, and especially in the time, and we're not in like, this isn't in like the 1990s. I mean, we're still in an era where that's, you know, (laughs) <laughs> your uncle might be kind of like, ah, I don't know about, it. you know what I mean? Like, that's really cool that, that all those guys were able to do that. And, and, and yeah, it's, that's always been a history of, um, the NBA in a lot of ways is, is yeah, it might not have been, you know, there was stuff here and there. And obviously there was, you know, racism issues in, in Boston and, and other places like that. I mean, it, it was, it was bound to happen. But when you look at the, the history of coaches, uh, of black coaches, it's amazing how long it goes back. And just like how I, I can't imagine at the time of, of how it's sort of, you know what I mean? There's a lot to it. And, and Curtis Harris always does a great job in Pro history. Anytime he talks about these these particular players that ended up, you know, ended up becoming, you know, player coaches or whatever. And it's always really remarkable when you especially when you think of the time, like like we, we sort of assume that. But no, I mean, it's really like it, it's I, I don't know exactly how to put it into words, but, you know, 60s, 70s or whatever. We're still not at a period where I think a lot like, you know, the majority. I, I don't know. I, I'm not living in that era. I can't say for sure, but it, it's it's interesting. Yeah, definitely. And, um, you know, so, so he, uh, you know, was kind of careful to. um yeah, because he, he obviously there's a comparison to Jackie Robinson, you know, uh, as far as, you know, breaking the color on their sports. But he talked about, well, you know, Jackie Robinson faced so much more than I did. I mean, you know, baseball was, you know, the cultural touchstone at the time. The NBA was not really, you know, it, it, it didn't really have the same impact at the time because, you know, the NBA just was very he compared it to arena football, you know, as far as like how popular mm-hmm. it was at, at the time. So, you know, it was still, you know, he was a pioneer and he was important. And, um, you know, the the fact that you know he and Cooper and Clifton were successful led to of course to um you know uh, other black players being invited uh into the game and of course you know the NBA is you know it typically dominated by um by black players it's very much the game that is thought of in many circles as a as a black game and yeah. um you know so so he helped um you know lead that effort and um he made the uh, basketball hall of fame in 2003 um and uh you know just had a uh a great career he he talked about where you know he didn't really like you know the white players he didn't really have major issues with there 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 was kind of some hurt feelings like there was an incident in uh syracuse where they they had to play i think an exhibition game and there was an issue with the hotel or, or there was an issue where he couldn't play in the game and he you know he understood that his teammates had to play in the game and it wasn't you know it wasn't their issue but None of them ever like you know talked to him about it or you know, made him feel at all like at ease and that that something like, right there were slights like that but it wasn't like he didn't face hostility from the players but from fans that was definitely um, you know an, an issue particularly I guess in Baltimore and in Fort Wayne Indianapolis and you know especially I guess the smaller cities that the NBA was in until you know the NBA you know basically moved all the franchises to everywhere but actually uh, of all places Rochester where the the first game took place it wasn't an issue because rochester was in integrated um 
had an integrated mm-hmm. schools, integrated college, and you know wasn't really uh, issue. And also, you know the the history of you know the, the, what it meant to history was lost in everyone because, of course, again, we, as we said, the NBA was not really a you know right. it wasn't America's not, pastime. Right. It wasn't you know what what every kid aspired. You know, it was it was still just sort of like you said, arena football is a, a great. Unfortunate comparison to think sure, of it as that, but sure. yeah, no, it, it was. I mean, that's that's let's let's be honest. I mean, yeah, integrating baseball is is a way 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 bigger deal, and and not to you know discredit what he did. Obviously, it's still a big deal, but yeah, yeah. We, we're we I think we can understand I mean, he, with context he, yeah, he, what what it means, right? I mean, in, he in faced, both ways, yeah, so. Jackie Robinson after just faced. I mean, it was just you know a a huge mar- a huge milestone for um just what he faced and going into baseball and, and everything and um so i i like that he you know i mean I, obviously earlier was very proud of his accomplishment and you know and, and but he was willing to give you know like he didn't overstate it you know he was willing to yeah, give credit absolutely. to what it was so um yeah i like that he had four he had four thousand six hundred eighty two points in his career he retired ranked 43rd in career scoring you know <laughs> which is an interesting <laughs> to think about you know Good God! Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just how, of course, you know how the game has uh, changed over the years. So uh, <laughs> that's about it that that we have for Earl. We we kind of put put his together a little bit a little bit later. Uh, Curtis Harris reminded us, like, oh yeah, he, he you know he the important guy to talk about too. So we wanted to give him his uh, his props. So, um, but uh, next we are uh, we're going to talk about uh, Jerome Kersey. Lectees, Walt Frazier looking on, always dapper. Wilkins with 41. This is Jerome Percy, a late entry. My dark he comes in from the baseline, the good leap over, throws it through with authority, comes up creativity in this contest to try and get the appeal of the judges. Like that. Jerome, she said Dominique got all excited here, wanted to be in, but uh, I'm sure his team's happy he's not. Not bad from Jerome Percy. He- If fool me once. <laughs> Jerome. Let's pick up now. Here's his replacement dunk. Neal's 96 for Jordan. On the part of Jerome Kersey, who with late notice coming into the competition, replacing oh, Dominique ooh. Wilkins has done a nice job. And they give him a fourth side to begin. Um, what, what are your memories of Jerome Kersey as a playing? Because I, a lot of my memories are, I, I've seen video and I've seen that, but I don't know if I remember profoundly a lot of his when he was playing or when, you know, he was there. Or maybe I just didn't really notice him because, you know, as a kid, I was obviously watching the NBA, but I was less, less intently watching it, less watching for, more just watching for the spectacle of it and less of like, that guy's, you know, the, here's what this guy is or whatever. And, you know, he's not one that you're going to really, that, that really jumps out to you as well because that that's one of my thoughts is when I was kind of going through and doing the research of him and looking up was yeah I mean looking at it now and watching highlights great player all that at the time I don't know if I really noticed him all that much even on those Spurs teams I think it was hard for me to really notice him how about you did, did were you kind of the same yeah um you know honestly yeah yeah I was more you know kind of a casual fan in the in, in the nine you know during the bulk of his playing career so I um like, you know, I knew the name and um, but, you know, honestly, the, kind of the, some of the other guys, for whatever reasons, stuck out of those Blazers teams. I mean, Drexler, uh, Buck Williams, because of the glasses, you know, the goggles, uh, Kevin Duckworth, yeah, yeah. because of the just the size and I, Cliff Robertson, I guess, because of the headband, you know, the, all those guys kind of came before mm-hmm. Kersey to me. So uh, I was no Cliff because of the, uh, the the Michael Jordan shrug. 
Yeah. The cliff is the cliffs is just in the background, like, man, I can't do anything. <laughs> there like, you go. Oh man. Like so that's how I always remember him. You just right. see his face and he's just like, come on. I, I forgot like, about that. Yeah. Please. Yeah. <laughs> Can you just miss one while I'm guarding you? Yeah. Like, so um you, you know, so he wasn't like a guy, you know, like he was more of a name that I knew, but not anyone I'd really like explored or thought much about his, you know, career, you know, until unfortunately until he passed away. Um but yeah, I mean he was really um you know, I, I guess really just like the the combination of power and athleticism um, kind of stands out to me. I mean, he was really he, I had no idea he competed in so many dunk contests and, you know, finished second one year uh, to Jordan, I think, in 87 and really was kind of, you know, was was a really f- kind of a combination of, you know, ferocity and grace in in his dunks. You know, he was c- kind of like a uh, compact, but was able to just finesse so much power into them. I thought that uh, I went back and I watched that 87 dunk contest. Jerome Kersey was pretty awesome in that. I, I yeah. would have, I mean, it's hard to match to Jordan. And that, and it happened the last year, too. You know, Dominique had a few years where it was like he was definitely the best. But it was like, well, Jordan's got the showmanship and all that sort of stuff. But, man, Kersey in 87 was really good. Like, those are really, really good dunks. And, like, a lot of them are. And he 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 suffers from, you know, a similar thing where, where Dominique would suffer from it, too. And you see it in, in, in subsequent dunk contests where sometimes the bigger guys that throw down these, like, really ferocious dunks, like, you don't really appreciate them in the moment. And I think the, the ratings are kind of lower. And then you watch sort of replays and you're like, oh, wow, that was a really, you know, a really, really good dunk or whatever. Or, like, you know, there's just weird stuff that sort of happens in, in those dunk contests. But I thought 80, I thought he was really good in those. And I remember watching some of the replays and, like, there was one that he does. I think it was his final dunk where he switches hands, like, twice in midair and like people didn't notice it when it was initially going on. And then when you watched it later, it was like, wow, he hung in the air and switched his hand like three times or whatever. But you know, that's, that's dunk contest. So I try not to get too upset about them. Cause come on. Yeah. Who cares? But, but damn it, Kersey in 87. And, and Skywalker, Kenny Skywalker, can he win one? <laughs> he was so good in all of them. I remember when I went back, I was like, this guy's awesome. And he yeah. never won any. We, we, he was so much better. You, you know how the stupid Jordan guy won all of them. Yeah, you know how they had the, you know, they had the old timers games for a few years. Yeah. Yeah. They, they should have an old timers dunk contest. That would be great, except for <laughs> I mean, it would. God forbid anybody blows their leg out yeah, or like knee out. Right. Or, or, or suffering maybe like from a nine, yes. maybe nine and a half foot rim or so, you know. Because yeah, who, who, how old do you think? Who are these guys? Who, who's a, like a prolific dunker that you think could still probably throw one down? That would be pretty nice. Hmm. I know Dominique. Like, I know Dominique can still dunk. Yeah. Would it be like? Is it just kind of like a tiptoe one, or do you think he really could? I, I mean, I'm very curious. I don't know if he could do like a really physically impressive dunk, but maybe if he trained for a while and, you know, it, it, it maybe, but, um, mm-hmm. but I mean, you Scotty know, Pippen maybe I feel like, Pippen Oh probably, yeah. I mean, yeah. I guess talking about what old, you know, what age we're talking about too. I mean, yeah, I don't know. Well, and that's maybe that's my question to you is what, what's sort of the age, like, what, what sort of era are we looking I at? I mean, is I would like, think like 50 and older, you would have to kind of, you know, yeah. that, that would like, is Jason Richardson invited or no? Like, <laughs> yeah. He's like 34. So, <laughs> so I don't, <laughs> so, I, I think he's got have a while. You seen him play. I, uh, yeah. <laughs> He just came back, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah I uh, I don't think I've seen the Sixers since he came back, so I can't. No, he's uh, he's not a very uh, he doesn't fly much. Yeah, anymore, well, but. you know, it's been a couple years of injuries, so. Well, but Stacy Ogman, I feel like he could still. Oh yeah, great. I bet I you know I think that's a good. Uh, I mean, who knows? <laughs> you know, we don't really see these guys that much, except you know, like you know, random stuff. We don't see them out there being athletic. Um, I don't know if anybody. I didn't watch it this year, but I don't know if anybody like in the shooting stars stood out to you as like uh, you know any of the old guys who look like still. Yeah, like, not really. Yeah. I mean, Nick was just kind of there. Yeah, uh, Pippen, you know. Pippen looked okay. Pippen always lo- it looks like he's in decent shape. Yeah, I mean, he's he's not even fifty yet, or he might just fifty. Um, now. yeah, he might have. If if he did, he would have just. It's turned close. Up, so. Yeah. So, um, let me see. Alan Houston always comes to those, and he always looks good. He always looks like he's ready to go. Yeah. But, you know, he, he was never really a prolific. You know, I know he was in one dunk contest, but he probably wouldn't. Uh, and now we're starting to get into like Harold. Call Harold Miner. What's Harold Miner? There you go. 
Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure Harold Meyer could still throw I, it. I, I would be fascinated by an old timer dunk contest. <laughs> let's do it. Let, let's, yeah, let's, yeah, we can spot Come up with a hashtag and we'll just continue to do it. Sure. Until... Sure. Um, yeah. Um, I mean, but I honestly, like, the one thing that surprised me is just how long Kersey played. Like, he, I mean, he played like 17 yeah. years. I mean, he's, um, uh, you know, he, I was, I had no recollection of those Spurs years that he won a title with the Spurs. I mean, I, that was, I think you mentioned something in a chat and I was like, really? He did? Cause I hadn't really like done any res, you know, profound research yet. And I was like, oh, wow. I had no idea, I had no idea, zero idea that he was on that team. And, you know, he didn't play a big part, but hey, he, he was on that team. So that counts. Yeah. I mean, he, he, on and off, you know, he, the <laughs> rings is the same either way, you know? Yeah. Exactly. Right. John, ask John Sally. He'll tell you that <laughs> it's, it doesn't matter how much you play. The fact that if you got a ring, you're good. So uh, a little bit of history on Jerome Kersey. Uh, what we decided to do with this format is we're going to look at a, a little bit of a quick basic history of each guy. We're going to do this for uh, for him and Anthony Mason. Uh, then we're going to do a standout game, a game that we found that was probably his best game or, or one that we thought was his best game or anything like that. Just a, 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 an interesting game in his career. Uh, a standout playoff series, what we consider his best playoff series. Uh, and then best season and then a few random things as well. So, you know, Anthony Mason, you, you could probably assume that one of them is going to be I won't spoil it, but knowing Anthony Mason, you could probably assume what one of the random topics will be. But yeah, we're going to do best season standout playoff, best game. But a little bit of basic history uh, to begin with Jerome Kersey. Uh, interestingly enough, he is the only player from Longwood University ever to reach the NBA. And this was um, at the time that he graduated, or not great, sorry, I'm going to qualify that in the next statement. By the time he left Longwood College, it was an NCAA Division II school. So he was still able to get, uh, he was drafted in the uh, 46th pick in the second round, which is pretty good from being from a, an absolute no-name um, college, uh, you're you're a relatively big baseball fan, correct? Uh, yes, big enough where you would know who Michael Tucker is. Not not that big. Apparently, you don't remember Michael Tucker. No. That's all right. I, I probably I had a lot of Michael Tucker cards. I think that's the only reason I remember because I was I was like, man, like I had like two sheets full of Michael Tucker cards. I don't know why I always got Michael Tucker, but never mind. Yeah, okay. that, that maybe I'm the only one. Might have passed my time. So. Uh, he, he was like early, he was like mid nineties, but he, he was no good. Okay. So it doesn't matter. He was also from Longwood college, but gotcha. long, long way to get to a story that didn't matter at all. Yeah. Um, interestingly enough, Kersey, he graduated. Story. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ding. <laughs> Folks. All right. Uh, Kersey graduated, uh, from Longwood actually in uh, May of 2006. So it was one of those stories where he, he left the college and he still had, you know, two college credits left or whatever. So he went back and he got his degree and, and that was pretty cool. And, and you'll know a lot about Jerome Kersey when we kind of go through the history, but he's a guy who. A lot of really cool charity stuff. Smart man, not just a not just a basketball player. A guy that was working in player personnel, worked as like a car salesman for a while, worked in like sales in between doing like assistant coaching jobs. Like he did everything. He lived a hell of a life for for you know how however long it you know it was. Um, October eighth, nineteen eighty uh, is when he was drafted. Or sorry, he was traded. This is an interesting thing I found. He was traded by the Los Angeles Lakers as a future pick. That's why I love the baseball yeah. or basketball so, reference. So the pick, as was, he's traded, the, the pick was traded more than he was traded. Yeah. So he was. Yeah. He. Well. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. They. they, they I don't the Lakers knew. Confused, <laughs> yeah. They knew. No. No. Yeah. The Lakers. He was a future nineteen eighty four second round pick. Um. Interesting. I. I and, and I kind of have a theory on this, but I'm not entirely positive. Uh, the Portland Trailblazers were given the option to swap first round picks in 1984 with the Lakers and opted instead just to keep the second round pick instead of swapping for the first round picks. To be fair, the first uh, the Lakers pick was 23rd. So, I mean, I maybe it was a financial thing, but well, okay. So they would have like swapped Portland would have swapped its own pick for the Lakers pick. I think instead, so. Well, no, I think okay. Cause that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it doesn't. Yeah, no, it was, it was kind of a weird. Yeah, I was wondering if you maybe could. Uh, like, <laughs> I, I, I guess I could see like it's possible that 
a high like you know like the first pick in the second round would you would want that more than the last pick in the first round because it's not right. guaranteed i don't i don't know if the rules were already but i don't know if they had more, yeah but yeah i'm not sure either yeah maybe because i don't know that's 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 odd i don't know if um ah uh, you know what okay I think I figured it okay. out. No, that's a different trade. Never mind. I have no idea. I have okay. no idea why they qualified this statement like that. Well, so I, because like, I don't think uh, Portland was ever interested in trading the second pick uh, overall, Sam Bowie, for uh, <laughs> the Lakers pick. No, but uh, that didn't, that wouldn't have made much sense. Yeah. No, but I, that's why I didn't know why they qualified that statement. So I wasn't sure. But, but there you go. Anyway, they had the, op- the opportunity to swap, but they just picked second round instead. Okay. So I don't know if anybody is a draft expert. You, you maybe they could have, maybe they could have like swapped the 84 one for an 85 one or something like that. Although that, it's something like yeah. that. Yeah. I don't know. But uh, I thought that was interesting. Anyway. Little thing there, but anyway, uh, back to Jerome Kersey. Uh, during his 13-year w- run with the Blazers, he uh, he never missed more than 19 games per season, which is which is really incredible. You look at you know led the league, you know 82 games a few times, really just a, a, a it always there, like a, a super dependable player that just never ever really missed much time. And even in his first few years, I think it was like barely a handful of games that he missed, which is awesome. It was like the first nine years, and he missed like a handful of games. It's it's really incredible uh, what what he was able to do for how long. Because um, you, you just don't get that that often, where guys are just that healthy for that long. I mean, usually get one. One, you know, relatively big injury, and he, he just never had it. Um, he obviously, uh, if you're familiar with the name and familiar with what we've been talking a little bit about, uh, he became one of the important pieces uh, of the Trailblazers teams that were, were pretty dominant in, in the early 90s and late 80s. Uh, they made it to two finals in 1990 and 1992, and he was, you know, joined along with with, with names that you know, really stacked teams, really, really good teams, you know, Clyde, uh, Clyde Drexler, Terry Porter, as you mentioned, Kevin Duckworth, Buck Williams, Cliff Robinson, uh, you know, you have a Drazen Petrovic in one of those years. You have Danny Ainge in 92. But but really, I mean, my biggest thing about those teams is I just love the depth of those teams. And it was sort of similar to what happened with Portland later in the 2000s or, or, or in the early, or the early 2000s, rather, where, you know, it's just a team that's just supremely deep. They just never could make it quite there. But just an incredibly deep team. Like you look at that, and there's, they're, I mean, these these Blazers teams with, with Kersey are, I mean, they're, they're eight, nine deep of like really decent players. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's a um, yeah. I mean, I remember those teams. I mean, those teams in any other era would have, you know, would have made a finals and or, yeah. well, they made two finals. They would have. I'm sure they would have won a finals. I mean, they were, you know, they were pretty great. Um, you know, in '91 they lost to the Lakers, who went to the finals. You know, they were 63 and 19 that year. That's probably the best regular season team they had. I mean, they just were were really a uh, a tough out and. Yeah. Um, you know, until the Suns got got Barkley, they were really, you know, they they had a, but even after that, they still had a pretty good run for, uh, you know, a little while. Um, I mean, you know, some good playoff appearances and some strong teams. You know, Rick Adelman being the coach, that's kind of where Rick Adelman, yeah. you know, made his name. Um, you know, or or you know, his for the first stop where he made his reputation. He, of course, he had other stops later, but um, yeah, I mean, that was a it was a fun team to watch too. I mean, they were you know they were kind of an up and down uh, the court type team, if, if I recall correctly. And uh, you know, Drexler is a guy who um, you know I, I think we've talked about is sort of like a a little bit forgotten um, in in his career. You know, just be he, he just being a you know was like a really really you know big star and you know, kind of suffers because he played exact around, you know, the exact same time as Jordan did. And, you know, <laughs> and, you know, he's compared with Jordan where he doesn't compare, but to almost anybody else, you know, almost any other shooting guard of all time. I mean, he's, you know, he's right up there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and you mentioned Drexler and him, the combo of him, uh, Kersey and Terry Porter, uh, they played together from 1985, 86, all the way until 94, 95. So it's a long 
you know, tenure of those three being the real key cogs of those Blazer teams. Uh, and that 94-95 team was the last year for uh, for all three men. Uh, Drexler obviously was was traded mid-year to Houston and went on to win the title there. You know, Porter would eventually join him. And then Kersey moved on to a bunch of different um you know, teams uh, in 1995, he was unprote- he was left unprotected in the 1995 expansion draft. Uh, the Blazers at that point had kind of moved on to different stuff. They had, you know, they had a number of, of of better players at that point or better forwards. You know, Cliff Robinson had really emerged as, as, as a, you know, a real, real, real dependable player. You just had a few other guys. I mean, they were going in an obviously different, younger sort of direction. So there was a, really wasn't a ton of worry for Jerome Kersey kind of leaving. And, 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 you know, he got picked up by the uh, Toronto Raptors. They waived him before the season began. Uh, then he went on to play a season with Golden State, one with the Los Angeles Lakers, another with the Seattle Supersonics, and then played two years with the Spurs. Uh, as mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, he won a ring with the 99 Spurs as a role player. Uh, he averaged only 3.2 points per game in the regular season and and, and wasn't a big part of their team, but but was a substantial role player. Uh, and, and he appeared in 14 playoff games, but uh, not a lot, not a ton of work in those games either. It was very, you know, kind of minimal work. But either way, a ring's a ring, and, and 14 playoff games is still pretty cool too. Uh, he finished career on the uh, the 0001 Milwaukee Bucks, which is a, a very famous team for a lot of reasons. Uh, that team, uh, they made the Eastern Conference Finals, but then uh, obviously lost to Allen Iverson's Sixers. Uh, Kersey played very sparingly on that team, wasn't a big deal. Uh, fell out of the rotation basically in February, and then barely played the rest of the year. But uh, that that's another team as well that kind of reminds me of those Blazers. A very deep team that just couldn't quite you know, make it over the hump, but, but they're a lot of fun as well. That, that Bucks team. Yeah, definitely. Um, I agree. All right. A few quotes here that I wanted to, uh, to go before I get into kind of the standout games and all the stuff about Kersey. Um, uh, Jim Armstrong, who, uh, he's from back of the Jersey.com did a really, really good tribute to, uh, Jerome Kersey that I read, uh, earlier. And, and I really, really, you, you know, it's not a site that I, that I really knew beforehand, but I really enjoyed his work on here. Uh, and, and his quote that was pretty interesting uh, about Kirsten, I absolutely agree, looking at sort of the history of him, looking at his stats, and then reading all the interviews and, and, and watching all the interviews that have come, you know, since his death. Um, he mentioned that as Bill Simmons coined in his book, The Book of Basketball, there were certain NBA players that you wanted in your NBA foxhole. He says, Jerome Kersey was a guy I wanted in my foxhole. And I think that's a great way to describe him. He wasn't a star by any means, but he was a really dependable player, really good at at, at, at certain things. You know, you mentioned the dunking uh, transition, a really good transition player. And this kind of goes into another um, quote as well that I got from uh, Comcast Sportsnet Northwest uh, Dwight James, who apparently had, who has covered, you know, Kersey through his entire career. Uh, and here's a few quotes he said about him. He was always trying to jump over people. He took some really bad falls along the way because he was always trying to pull off some death-defying play. The bet, and he, uh, and then he also qualifies it with uh, he was the best chase-down shot blocker I have ever seen. And 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 watching highlights bear that out. I remember you, you know today sort of pouring over Kersey highlights. You see this guy who in transition would just ferociously dunk it, and no matter who's in front of him. In a lot of ways, I, I don't know if it was off air or, or already on this show that you mentioned. Reminds me a lot of Sean Kemp, where if Sean Kemp got the ball. And he was going up for a dunk. God willing, whoever was in his way, he was going to go for a dunk, no matter what. And like, there's a ferociousness of that dunking, you know, style that that's great. But like, like, like James mentions, it also gets you really hurt. But Kersey was luckily, you know, never really ever have a, an issue there. But uh, also the shot blocking as well. That was something I, I he, he didn't have a ton of blocks. It blocks wasn't really like a, a focal part of his game. But when you watch the highlights, you see a lot of those of, of guys going up for layups, you know, lazy layups and him just swatting it out and stuff. So that's one of the, the memories I sort of have of him of going back and sort of watching these and, and, and some quotes that I thought were pretty interesting. Yeah. Uh, one thing in there that I thought was interesting was the comparison to Paul Millsap, where like the seven, yeah. the, the seven year stretch of Millsap's career is very similar to uh, Kersey's seven year stretch of the same you know, the, the same ages, um, statistically that, that kind of seems like a, um, a decent comparison for Kirstie Millsap isn't quite, you know, he's not 
Uh, oh, actually, he's a pretty, he's a pretty decent dunker. Now I think about, it. he's not a dunk contest level dunker, but he. You don't think of him as that, but yeah, he's not bad. Yeah, he, like he, he threw one down a, a couple of Hawks games ago. That was pretty. Um, that that was pretty. He's deliberate about so, it. Yeah, he waits. Yeah. He, he doesn't like if he doesn't have to, he's not going to. But yeah, right. That's... Yeah, it, and it was situation where, but I, I think Millsap's a, a a a nice you know um mm-hmm. a nice comparison as far as just um you know a little bit in the game, a little bit in production, and you know just a little bit in sort of how they played. Absolutely. Uh, my favorite standout game for Jerome Kersey, one that I picked out, was February 12th, 1988, and that was against the Denver Nuggets. And and I will qualify this for a little bit because obviously it's the Denver Nuggets in 1980, and you're going, wait a minute, that team just gave up points out of the, you know, that's the Doug Moe teams. And and I we'll get to there in a sec. But he had uh, 34 points and 20 rebounds, which is is not his best game score, but I thought just his overall, I mean, just a game of, of, of both, you know, decent shooting, rebounding, you know, all that sort of stuff. I thought this was his best one, you know, February 12th, 1988. Uh, and as mentioned, this was a Doug Moe coach. Denver Nuggets team, so you're probably thinking, well, you know, it's not that hard to score 34 points against them. Interestingly enough, uh, obviously they were first in, in the league in pace because it was a Doug Moe Denver Nuggets team, so of course they were. Uh, but they weren't that bad defensively, and that was always something I remember, you know, reading back on stuff of Doug Moe always screaming about this. And he was a little bit ahead of his time where people go, your teams give up so many points, and he's like, no, we score so many points too. Like, why you're not understanding this? And like, I remember just reading quotes and reading in books of that he would just shout and be like, no, you're not. Like, we also score 120 points. Like, we win a lot. Like, that's not the point. But people were, you give up 100 points a game. That's bad. Boo, boo, boo. But um, um, this year, that that team was sixth in defensive rating, uh, with 106.3 was their uh, you know points allowed per 100 possessions, which isn't great. But I mean, sixth in the league, not you know not not anything to slouch at. And and interestingly enough, in in straight opponents points per game, they were only 19th out of 23. So not like yeah, they weren't great defensive team. But not bad. I mean, that's yeah. that's a pretty pretty good. I mean, that's that's something that always faulted D'Antoni teams too, where everybody's like, "Oh, look at how many points they're giving up," and it's like, "Well, no, we're we're also scoring a lot. Why don't you?" Yeah, <laughs> but you and, know, and it was more like the Dugmo teams. I mean, that they definitely had their reputation for you know just for scoring it up and down. But I think it was really even like more of the Paul Westfall in their early '90s teams where they were they genuinely were like at like you know giving up records and they were also like last in the league in defensive rating. I mean, it was just yeah, th- those insane. guys. Were, th- that team was reckless. Yeah. Those Westfall, they were. Yeah. Yeah, but the, but the, most yeah. of the eighties Nuggets teams were, you know, yeah, yeah, they were they were either solid or good on defense, and yeah. and they were, and I mean, you would get some ridiculous games with that, yeah, you yeah. get some you know record breaking games or whatever, right. but by and large, they were pretty good, and they were winning a lot. I mean, yeah. it reminds me a lot of the the you know the George Carl Nuggets as well. Is that it's like that that style? I mean, yeah, we're gonna run and gun, and we're gonna win forty five games. So sure. cool, yeah. like let's do it. So. Yeah. I thought that was his, his best game. Uh, standout playoff series. I picked the 1999 Western Semifinals versus the San Antonio Spurs. Um, I mean, Kersey, we, we mentioned some of his career numbers, but these are well above. Uh, 21.4 points per game, uh, nine rebounds per game, and an average game score of 16.2. So we had a really, really great series. Uh, most importantly, the reason I picked this, though, uh, game seven of that series, uh, Kersey had a gigantic game. He had uh, 21 points, 16 rebounds, and six steals. I thought the six steals was, was really interesting. And uh, obviously knowing that, you know, they, they went on to win. Uh, the Western Semis that year and going to the NBA Finals where they would meet the Detroit Pistons and, the, you know, the vaunted defense or whatever. But uh, I thought that was a, a real um, a real good series. And it stood out to me as being his absolute best one held up by that Game 7 performance where, you know, there were, especially if you look at that game's um, you know, Drexler wasn't playing all that well. I think it was, I forgot, it was Porter or Drexler. One of them was not shooting well. It was something they were like three of 11 or something like that. So, Kersey going in there and, and, and you know, picking up the scoring load and those six steals are, are, are really awesome. And yeah, I mean, it, it got him to the finals. So, that's pretty cool. So, I would say that was probably uh, their best. Uh, best season, I went with 89 90, which, fittingly enough, uh, matches with the standout playoff series. Um, 
he had a, uh, a 16 points per game that year, and his career high was 19.2 in, in 87-88. But I thought this year as an overall year uh, was a little bit better. Um, he had uh, a career-best 8.4 rebounds per game, a career-best 4.7 defensive win shares, uh, a career-best 8.8 win shares in total, and a 3.6 value over replacement player, which was also a career-best. So he, you know, his scoring wasn't quite you know, what it was in, in 87, 88, but everything else was better from defense to rebounding to everything else. So I thought that was a pretty interesting year um, to pick. And then obviously it, it matches with the standout playoff series. You know, they, he has a great playoff run, you know, has a great game seven in the Western semis. They go to the NBA finals. Um, he, you know, they, they obviously don't win. They lose to the, the vaunted, you know, Detroit Pistons or whatever, but he has some pretty good games in there, including game four. He has 33 points in, in, in a game four loss, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, I thought that was his best overall year. And I, and I think the finals, you know, appearance sort of lives up to that as well. So that was, that was a uh, one that I picked. Um, mm-hmm. There are a few other things I did decided for my randomness. I decided fouls and that's, I kind of called this section fouls and, and, and Jerome was not shy at all about grabbing fouls. And that might be a lot of the, the chase down blocks, uh, you know, that, that, the Comcast Sports Network Northwest guy said that he was he was great at chase down blocks and I don't know what it I mean without pouring over the game you know the game data and all that sort of stuff I I have no idea but he had a lot of fouls he uh, he averaged three per game over his career uh, three point two during his Blazers tenure uh, and then I did a little bit of play indexing just to kind of see where he ranks all time in terms of guys you know in fouls and, and minutes uh, and uh, over uh, of players with over two uh, twenty thousand minutes so this is over twenty thousand minutes played uh, only Danny Shays James Edwards Rick Mahorn Caldwell Jones, Kurt Thomas, and Sean Kemp, interestingly enough, have more fouls than Kersey um, per minute played. So he so he he got his work done in, in not many minutes, but a lot, a lot of fouls. I mean, he's obviously he doesn't rank historically all time in fouls just because he obviously doesn't have you, you know the the minutes that, that a lot of the guys do. Uh, you know, guys that played, you know, a big like a guy like Shaq or whatever is, is near the top or Will Chamberlain or those guys sure. who just played, you know, ungodly amounts of minutes. But for his minutes played uh, and and fouls generated, he he's right up there with 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 the NBA greats such as Kurt Thomas. So, yeah. Um, yep. And then the last section I did, um, and this is the thing, if you've been watching the tributes, if you watched any video, if you've read anything about Jerome Kersey, you, you know, since his death, the biggest thing and I'm, I, I the header for this one, I put legend on and off the court because people talk about, yeah, he was this, this and this for the Blazers, but he meant so much more to the community of Portland. And that seems to be the prevailing thought with Jerome. And then when I was going through, I was trying to find people talking about his game. And, and, and unfortunately, I was having a tough time because everybody would sort of say, yeah, he did this for the Blazers. But here, let's talk about this. Let's talk about what he did. And, and that's kind of cool. I mean, I'm perfectly OK with that. For the purposes of this, I would have probably liked a little bit more of, hey, describe to me how he played. But but it's really interesting to see what he sort of did in the community. Uh, he was the Trailblazers uh, at the time of his death. He was the Trailblazers alumni ambassador, so he did a bunch of uh, of stuff with the Blazers and with their organization. Uh, he did. Uh, he was an ambassador for the Children's Cancer Association. Uh, he had done that for the past five years. Um, he also worked for Habitat for Humanity, Caddies for Cure, and then uh, he also developed the Trailblazers Boys and Girls Club and several other local organizations. And that's the biggest thing you hear in all these these interviews and. Even when they're mentioning their coaches and even when they talk to guys like Terry Porter, Drexler or whatever, they talk about what he did. You know, he was great. He was a tenacious. He was a, he was a great teammate, all this sort of stuff. But let's talk about what he did off the court. He did so much, so much. So great to see that. And and uh, it's, unfortunately, he died so young, but uh, definitely had a great life. I mean, like I said, he he did so many things in his life. In addition to, you know, becoming the first player from, from a kind of a no-name school to make the NBA, to playing there, to being a journeyman, to winning a ring, to... You know, being an assistant coach in Milwaukee with Terry Porter um, to being, you know, like I said, a car salesman. And then he worked in the office of the Trailblazers, uh, you know, did so many charities, did all the other stuff. Um, 
just really cool. And there's a there's an interesting quote here uh, from the Children's Cancer Center director of development. It was at Jenny O'Brien. She says, uh, "For the little ones that couldn't reach the basket, Jerome was the first one to scoop them up and put them uh, and put them up so they could shoot a basket. He just had a really wonderful way with kids." So. Sounds like a great guy. Yeah, absolutely. And so, I, you know, they talked about you, you linked to it, but there's a, um, you know, an article by uh, Ben Gulliver at SI um, talking about, you know, just how like, you know, he was he was active in the organization and how like the organization, you know, the Blazers had, you know, responded to the, you know, death at 52, um, you know, was shocking because of his age and, you know, because of the, the swiftness of it. And, and they had all seen him earlier in the day, which right, was, was exactly. kind of chilling, too, when it's like one of the guys was like, you know, I just gave him a hug and said goodbye. And like, I, I had yeah, no idea, right. you know, that that was yeah, it. Like, he is he, a blood clot issue. So um, just, you know, a huge surprise. And of course, um, the news kind of came out before, you know, they could confirm that it happened and having, you know, just the process of, OK, did he really die and getting together with the family and making sure everyone's notified before they can put out a statement. And it's just, you know, not that that's like the biggest issue, you know, of all that, but it's just, you know, it, the, thinking about how challenging it would be for an organization to sort of, um, you know, to, to handle that, um, you know, it's uh, my heart's go out to them, uh, you know, everyone who's been, um, you know, who, who's lost him and been affected by that. Absolutely. And yeah, that's a really good piece. Uh, it's Ben Gulliver. Uh, I forgot the exact title of the piece, but if you look at Ben, uh, ben Gulliver, Jerome Kersey, you should be able to find it pretty easily. He just does a great job of, of, of painting the picture of why it was such a big deal. To I mean, like people were just shocked in the Blazers organization, and it just shows what he, sort of impact he had is 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 how how big of a deal it was to everybody there. It wasn't just a oh, you know, what's what's Jerome been doing? Like he he had just an important piece in that organization to to this point, and and, and was just an absolute legend. They have a great tribute video in the in the story too about him and all that other good stuff so unfortunately had to talk about it but still a, a great life though i mean i think he he not, you know not knowing or you know it's easy to say but i think he led a pretty awesome life so yeah so go ahead yeah exactly so um so i think we'll take a little bit of a break and then we will uh, come on back and talk about uh anthony May. <laughs> We are ready to talk a little bit about uh, Anthony Mason, who um, I, I think would be sort of the best known to modern fans of the three guys that we are talking about. Um, of course, his um, most famous years uh, with the uh, New York Knicks in the early to mid 90s. But, you know, he really, um, you know, he kind of had an interesting journey Um uh, to start off with, he was you know, he grew up in Queens and he was part of a New York basketball scene along with guys like Mark Jackson and uh, Kenny Smith and a lot of guys who who didn't make the NBA but uh, those two you know kind of were contemporaries of his. Um, ended up playing at uh, Tennessee State University. It's sort of a thing the three all three players uh, that were talked about have in common. They all came from small colleges. Um, Earl Lloyd played at West Virginia State. I forget if we mentioned that, but the, oh yeah, they all yeah. went all went to small colleges. So. Um, and he was a, a journeyman who uh, he drafted by in the third round by Portland, but uh, they were they, as you mentioned, a stacked deep team. They didn't have room for him, so he went to Turkey. Then he played uh, like 21 games with the Nets. Then he uh, popped off to Venezuela. Then played uh, had a couple of 10 day stints with the Nuggets. 
then went to the Tulsa Fast Breakers of the Continental Basketball Association, and then the Long Island Surf of the USBL, the United States Basketball League, I believe. So that one I'm not even sure I've heard of. I mean, I think I've heard of it. I, like, yeah, I, I, I don't I know no idea. I know about the CBA, but I don't really know nothing about the USBL. I've seen the acronym, but I couldn't tell you if I knew one thing about that yes. <laughs> league at all. Someone needs to, is there a book out there that just goes like breaks down these little odd leagues? There, enough? Somebody make that. There's book. a there's a couple of, of CBA books. I know that. I haven't read them. But, okay, I'm going to have to look them out cuz I'm, yeah. I'm I'm fascinated by the CBA. Yeah. Fascinated. There, there's there's a couple of the, the, that are regarded as pretty good. So Okay. Um, I'll, have to, I'll have to seek those out. Yeah, and um so 91 92 season he uh caught on with the Knicks. Uh Pat Riley who had just become coach there was uh you know, looking for a tough-minded physical player, you know, looking to kind of create that identity that um, would rough its way around the league. And he was definitely part of that with, you know, Charles Oakley and uh, Patrick Ewing and other guys, um, you know, uh, and similar to John Starks, not in the sense of the physical toughness, but in the sense of like, you know, coming from these humble origins of, you know, bouncing around the, um, you know, and making their way into the league. Um and he sort of grew into a bigger role with the Knicks as they had memorable pl- playoff runs. You know, they had a lot of big series against the Bulls and the uh, Pacers. And they also went to the uh, finals in 94, losing to Houston in game seven. Uh, he was the sixth man of the year in uh, 94, 95 season. Uh, but he had a few uh, spats uh, with Pat Riley where he um, ended up being suspended for a few games that happened two seasons in a row. Also had some legal trouble involving fights with police and later had a, um, a, a sexual assault allegation that was pleaded down. Um, so, you know, had some anger not only on the court, but some issues off the court as well. Uh, eventually was traded to Charlotte before the 96-97 season, uh, but by then he was about 30 and um, ended up having uh, playing a bigger role and really uh, thriving. Charlotte had some pretty good teams uh, yeah. over those years. Um, they never did much in the playoffs, but they were definitely, you know, a um, they were a fun team that, um, you know, they had Glenn Rice, uh, had, you know, David Wesley, Muggsy Bogues. You had some good shooters, Del Curry. Um, that later got Baron Davis and Eddie Jones. Um, and, uh, and he spanned both those teams too, which is, which is kind of fun about that is that he wasn't just, you know, he, he spanned sort of, and you'll get to it a little bit, but yeah, yeah he spanned that, like the, the Baron Davis era, but then also spanned that, that mid nineties one too, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, uh, you, you don't think of him as a, as a Hornet as much. I mean, I don't personally right, but he, think of him as much as a Hornet as, as a net, uh, as a Nick, but had a pretty, pretty long and pretty profound career with, with the Hornets. Yeah, he had three full seasons. He was hurt in the 99 lockout season. He was injured. So he didn't play that year, but he was, you know, mm-hmm. you know on the team. Uh, then moved on to uh, Miami Heat, uh, reunited with uh, Pat Riley, and uh, ended up uh, having his first and only All Star season that year. Um, and but then they decided not to bring him back. Um, I think partly because of his age and not wanting to give him a big contract. But then he was he was 34 that year, and then he ended up moving on to Milwaukee, who had gone to the Eastern Conference Finals the year before, but they were a, a big disappointment, and he. <laughs> started having issues with conditioning and such and was out of the league a year later. So, so that is, those are the basic, um, 
the basic roundup of everywhere he went in his career. And, you know, I, I think one thing, you know, the, the, the thing that stands out to me is, um, you know, obviously he played the, uh, he, he played the point forward, um, thing that he did throughout his career. I mean, he really had a mix of, uh, you know, being a big man with, with guard skills and, and having that sort of that, both the grace and the skill along with the, the toughness and the power. Like I, he's another guy. I mean, I, I knew him better than, um, drum Kersey, but, but I didn't like my memory of him was more like, I remember, you know, the, the, the grinded out Knicks teams that beat everybody yeah. up. And I remembered him, you know, being, you know, just a, you know, muscular guy. There's a, I just remember him shoving people. That's yeah, all. exactly. That's like, right. I thought he never, like, I never even assumed he ever touched the ball. I just assumed like right. Michael Jordan went up for a layup and then he just shoved him. And yeah, <laughs> that's like exactly. Anthony Mason yes. is, is all I remember of Anthony Mason. And then like getting in a fight, like somebody coming over and pushing him. And that's all I remember is just him getting in fights and pushing Michael. Jordan. Yeah. And so, he did yeah. that, but he had really, he had really, really great footwork. He, he yeah. handled the ball. You know, he, you know, um, later in his career, you know, he helped, you know, facilitate the offense um, and uh, was really, yeah, was a had a, had great skills as a uh, as a guard. I think the thing that he lacked, he wasn't much of a shooter. He got better at that aspect through later in his career. But that was kind of the thing that kind of kept him from being a superstar. He had just about everything else. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he um Conditioning was also a thing too. Even even in his even as graceful as he was and all that yeah. sort of stuff, you always kind of you always kind of saw and like yeah. even when you watch those Hornets highlights well, where he's you yeah. know, facilitating the offense, or whatever, he's still kind of just uh, yeah. Uh, he, the, and the, it was to his benefit too because he was great at backing guys down and really right. great at that. So his girth was sort of what helped him, but there were also times too where you could tell it was sort of you know maybe possibly holding him back. But yeah. that, that's a double edged sword because it was also what made him you know so powerful as well. So who who knows? He so. he was yeah. I mean he when he was younger he was just he was just cut. I mean he was just you know yeah. incredibly muscular i mean he, he was described in an si article from 92 uh he's a, a hybrid upper body by michelin legs by the rockettes so it's <laughs> good that's a, that's a pretty good one yeah and um you know he um there's another si article from 98 where um talking about you know kind of the development of his passing and you know he's with um is with Charlotte at this point, and he said, um, although he rarely considered giving up the ball as a youngster on the New York City pr- playgrounds, Mason has become a student of post passers, particularly Charles Barkley. You see how Charles baits people, then finds his open shooters, he says. He takes pride in it, and it shows. Um, and he he loves to pass so much that he's been known to grouse when the Hornets fail to run their offense through them. <laughs> and, and that was one thing that was kind of like throughout his, particularly with the Knicks, like he really wanted to have a bigger role in offense, and that was just something that he was rarely able to get. That was a big mm-hmm. you know fight with Pat Riley on um you know to um you know just you know give me the ball. <laughs> you know I want, I want the ball more, and then. Um, in his last season in New York, Don Nelson took over. He he coached for uh, about two thirds of the season before he left, and they they put Jeff, Jeff Van Gundy in. Um, and there's a quote from Derek Harper, you know, his teammate for a few years with the Knicks. Uh, when Don Nelson loves a guy, you know he's versatile, and he loved Mason. <laughs> um, Nelly took me off point and put Mace in there and told me to trust him. I did, and it worked. He, Mace found open people. He looked like a linebacker, but his quick feet and his agility were really special. He made a lot of bigger. The bigger guys look small when he played against them, which is and that that was Derek Harper. Uh, I don't know if you call. Oh, I, I, I think I did. I, maybe, maybe I. Maybe, oh, did you? Okay, in case you didn't, that's Derek Harper. That was Derek Harper. He's yes. the one that was taken off point. So Derek Harper was. The oh one. yes, I'm. Yeah, sorry yeah. to be clear. Yes. No, no, you're good. No, I just want to make sure. I don't know if you. I, I don't recall if you said it or not. Okay. But. Yeah, listen, Rich. Listening. 
<laughs> like Derek made like like uh like Derek Harper did to Don Nelson. You gotta listen. Exactly, right. Yes. He listened. So um I yeah, so, so he he um I, I mean that's this sort of his um skills and, and watching the video, I mean he really just is um, you know, that that's that skill really did stand out. Um I I, I for a standout game, I picked a two thousand game um, against the Raptors, in which he had a triple-double. He had a career-high 31 points, 14 rebounds, 11 assists. And um, Toronto and uh, Charlotte both had nearly identical records, 40-32 uh, and 40-31 and 31 for the Hornets. And uh, they're both battling for, you know, playoff positioning in the East. Um, and so this is an important game. And um, so, so Mason is... Um, and then they talked about in the video where Paul Silas had like officially made him, you know, basically their point guard going on point forward, mm-hmm. just basically to help s- solve a log jam in the front courts. So everyone could get their touches and also, you know, uh, running the offense through him, opened things up for other other guys. I mean, they're, um, you know, they had they had David Wesley as their point guard, who, who if I recall correctly, was kind of more of a shooter than he was. Yeah, he was a good shooter. Yeah. He was more of a shooting guard. That was always a problem with that the Hornets team. And then you had a guy like Baron Davis, who's he was a rookie. also kind of, yeah, yeah and he's, he's a rookie Not, too. And he was also kind of like, yeah, I can pass, but I'm really good at scoring. So I was like, are you sure? Like, So it's actually, it, it was a smart idea. Good on Paul Silas to do that. Because, yeah, the, neither of those two was really, really great point guards. They were better scoring guards. So yeah, it worked. Exactly, yeah. And they had you know, Eddie Jones was on the team. Um, Eldon Campbell. Uh, Derek Coleman, although they didn't play in this game, was on the team. Um, so uh, those were kind of the key players. Brad Miller was on that team, too. Um, although I don't think I saw him in – at least I didn't see him in the highlights of the game. I don't think he played in this game either. But uh, he might that might have been the year he got traded. Now that I think about it, he may have been um, a midseason trade. Yeah, they – the guys who play are um, the guys that we mentioned plus Chucky Brown, Eddie Robinson, and Todd Fuller. So uh, I saw uh, you made me watch those highlights, and I saw Eddie Robinson, and then I cowered. Oh uh, yeah, that's not not great. <laughs> Why did you make me <laughs> remind me of Eddie Robinson? <laughs> so you know, I mean, just really, it showed you know off his great ball handling and passing for his size. Uh, he scored a, a lot on his old teammate Charles Charles Oakley. Um, defended uh Vince Carter well that was you know another thing where his defensive versatility and and we'll kind of get into that a little bit more in the standout playoff series where he could defend um someone like you know he could defend Carter he could defend you know, basically four positions um in his prime so um and you know great post moves both in scoring and in in passing so you know obviously you know getting you able to get down there being able to find the open shooters and also you know being able to score when needed so um mm-hmm. uh, Definitely, definitely great there. So, uh, the standout playoff series, there's a lot of them, you know, because, um, he obviously, um, was, you know, he was part of, you know, when you're playing New York, people are going to remember the New York series just because, you know, that's what happened. And, uh, you know, the, the Bulls and the Pacers series, you know, there's, there's some real good ones from 92 through 95 there, but I chose the 94 finals versus the Rockets, um, where, you know, statistically he did, um, similar numbers to kind of what he normally did. But he was just kind of able to sort of um, I I think the thing that stood out to me was that how much he guarded Hakeem Olajuwon and how relatively effective he was at doing that, Um, you know, even though he was a bit undersized to be doing that and to, um, you know, but Olajuwon couldn't move him. You know, I mean, he really actually was, although he wasn't as tall, he was 
um, you know, thicker than Olajuwon, I guess. Yeah. Like Olajuwon wasn't quite as like thick then as I kind of remembered him being, you know, like, I mean, he was a muscular guy, but he was a little bit more, um, I mean, that's part of like his talent is he was like lithe and graceful, but he was, you yeah, know, right. How much did he weigh? I'm always kind of, uh, 255 it says. Okay. So, and Mason, by that point, if, if when he was 25, he was 250, I, I would venture to guess he was, uh, yeah, a little more at maybe this like point, 260, but... 270, I would guess. Yeah, I was yeah, gonna I mean, say, yeah, was, so that's okay. Yeah, he didn't look like he did in his Charlotte years where, you know, there was, where there was, yeah, more, he was still okay, well, right? But but he's six seven. I mean, he's he's three inches shorter yeah. and you, you know ten or fifteen pounds heavier. So exactly, yeah. So it's a big deal. And he guarded uh, Derek Harper. Um, and this is a the Harper is mentioned in a um a Bleacher Report piece by Rick Buecher. Um, and um, he guarded Elijah Wan, Otis, Otis Thorpe, and Robert Ory all in that series. So, and that series went seven games. You know, it was very close to a Knicks win. So several of the games were um were very close. So it was definitely a um you know definitely a good performance for him. And you know, his numbers were I mean, they were you know kind of what they were usually in his cry line. He played mm-hmm. he, almost thirty minutes uh per game, eight point six uh points. 6.9 rebounds, uh, you know, nothing, not exceptional, you know, but he definitely had more standout series later performance wise uh, when he played in Charlotte. But, you know, as far as just um, kind of encompassing like a, kind of a mix of everything that he did, I think this Rocket series is a pretty good one to pick. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great pick. It's a it's a it's a fun series to to relive as well. I, I know I've I've not that long ago looked at highlights and it, it's maybe the games themselves are not that exciting, but but it's fun because it's just different teams in the '90s. You kind of get bored, and even me, I get bored of like you know '90s highlights because it's just like ah, oh, it's yeah. just Jordan yeah. <laughs> and like Pippen and like they're just uh, but so when you get this, it's like oh my god, it's like a different team in the finals. Yeah. Like that's pretty cool. Yeah. Like that's always I always like watching those finals, and I always was uh, was a big fan of these finals because it was something different. The the biggest. Um point differential at the end of the game was nine points yeah like they were all like yeah. super close so, games yeah. too which i remember seven, all the way through seven games seven so it's, eight it's a lot of fun seven eight four nine seven two and six wow so, oh i i forgot the Knicks were up three two in that series yeah yeah <laughs> that might be a, that might be a good uh that might be a good podcast one too uh yeah let's do that yeah i, I think that would be i can laugh at one. the Knicks fans there you go oh, can, oh can, we can bring no. on a Knicks fan and i will make fun of them oh so. no you know we don't want to do that my rings that I clearly won. As you a do, Bowl, yes. Because <laughs> I live in the same city that they play, so that them. means I won them. So you, yeah, you know, count the rings, <laughs> right? Um, I have a shirt with them on them. Does that count? There you go. I have, I, I have a hat. You, I have a shirt. And you a hat. can you can literally count the rings on your shirt. So I believe that counts. <laughs> right. That's what I mean. I'll, I I will we'll do a video chat and I will go look. Rings six rings. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Z with a Z. We, 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 Two Zs. As many Zs. As many Zs as you <laughs> right. possibly can I got fit. six. Yeah, I got six Zs, right? Uh, that would make sense to me. Do you usually, do you use as many Zs as your, so like Boston Celtics fans have to just F-17 like. 17 Zs, yeah. They can't even like tweet it because it's, <laughs> it uses yeah, too many characters. Or 18. Too. I forget how many that was. It's not important. Uh, what no. is it? It's either 17 or 18. I think it's 17. Okay. I think the Lakers have 16. I think that's what it is. Okay. That, that sounds yeah. right. Yeah, I thought it was 16, but that, that's the Lakers. You're right. Yeah, yeah I have no idea. I, it, it's not important. Someone, someone, <laughs> it is. No, it is. Someone it might is. correct us. And if they do, but, you know, <laughs> we good care. for you. But um, <laughs> so uh, his best season was uh, his all star season in uh, 2000, uh, 2001. Uh, reunited with Pat Riley, he was the second oldest first-time All-Star in history, uh, one month younger than Nat Sweetwater Clifton, um, also a, uh, a African-American pioneer in, in basketball. Um, and uh, th- that was the year that Alonzo Mourning uh, w- had his kidney ailment and was out for the season. 
Uh, so he ended up playing uh, center for, um, you know, for more almost half the season. So he played, uh, you know, he, he played the center position, but he never, you know, had played. He'd either been a power forward or small forward, um, uh, you know, throughout his career, playing most of his minutes there. But he played almost half of them at center that year. And, um, you know, he averaged uh, 16.1 points, which was just barely off his career high. He, um, um, he had 9.6 rebounds, 3.1 assists, and um, had his um, had his highest usage uh, ever in his career, exactly at 20, which is kind of funny. Uh, exactly uh, average. He, yeah, I mean, he just um, he made a real strong season. Had his a best PER, his best uh, winch, or very very close to his best winches for 48. It was slightly off from a year in Charlotte, but. Um, so one thing I didn't mention specifically uh, is that he played uh, more than 3000 minutes for six straight seasons, which is uh, which I don't think would happen now. But that's like a, uh, <laughs> you know, and every season from the Knicks on through Milwaukee, he played um, no fewer than 73 games. It's like he plays for Tom Thibodeau. Yeah, so. right. I mean, he, he played crazy, you know, a lot of minutes and, uh, you know, although we need lasted till, you know, 35, 36. So. Yeah. And it's kind of funny. We're, we're ragging on, you know, his his athletic shape and all this sort of stuff. And he's like, I'm good. Yeah, <laughs> like, he's fine. Well, fat doesn't pull. I think it what was the John Crook that said that from baseball. It's like, well, I, don't, I you can't pull fat. So I mean, it's wrong. But I mean, he doesn't understand. He doesn't understand how muscle structure works. But yeah, we'll go with it. So. Well, I, I try to get all my anatomy <laughs> lessons from John Crook. I feel like it's, it's good advice <laughs> right, now. Exactly. So um the uh the heat didn't end up you know they were uh i mean they didn't do anything exception in the playoffs or anything they lost in the first round to the hornets if, as a matter of fact actually anthony mason had a history of his team of losing to his previous teams in playoff series <laughs> that, that happened like uh two or three times in his career so so it's a very interesting team uh it, i'm sure you've looked at the roster of these guys there's a lot of really interesting folks on this team that uh Either, but not like the profound, like the big guys are like your Eddie Jones, your Anthony Mason, your Brian Grant, your Tim Hardaway, you know, Alonzo Mourning yeah. for as much as he had. Then it gets weird. Then you get a Bruce Bowen in there who, who you know, uh, Cedric Sabalas is still there. Uh, Thunder Dan, Dan Marley. And then my my best combo, which I can't imagine how, I get, these guys are still super young at this point. So I don't know if they were total idiots at this point, but Ricky Davis and Eddie House were on the same team. Yeah, it's, so. it's funny that Ricky Davis and Eddie Jones both followed, um, both followed Mason to, um, uh, to from Miami to Charlotte. I don't, I don't yeah. think there was a trade. Were they in the same trade? Yeah, I wonder. Um, I don't think it was. A, let me look that up. Yeah, I have no idea if they were. I didn't think Mason was traded. I thought he was signed to the free agent. I thought so too. Yeah, that's why it's interesting. Um, trying to look here at the career of where are you, Ricky? Uh, you didn't play much. Uh, oh, no, see. it was I, maybe it was a signing trade because, OK, it was um, it was Ricky Davis, Dale Ellis and Eddie Jones for P.J. Brown, Rodney Buford, Tim James, Jamal Mashburn, Otis Thorpe. Okay, so they were because that made too much sense that they would all like all three of them like, hey, yeah, <laughs> let's all sign with the right. Like, yeah, so they're pretty cool, but yeah, okay, there you go. So the Ricky Davis, yeah, we'll talk about it more on a Ricky Davis oh, podcast yeah. well, that, coming next week. Be- I believe I believe that's the, we're new for that next week, right? Uh, for a Ricky Davis week for uh, yes, Harvard yeah, we already recorded it, right? Yeah, I I believe that would yeah that would make sense. Uh, okay, yeah, right. yeah. um. We're not. It's we're over. Yeah, maybe maybe, not maybe soon. Maybe, yeah, soon. Yeah, I'm I'm sure that's that's definitely in there. So, um, you know, the other thing that I kind of picked, um, is for my random thing was sort of how he reflected the Knicks, the city of New York, and sort of the changes that happened in 1990s basketball. You, you know, I don't know. What what are your feelings on the 
on on those Knicks. I mean, just sort of separate it from your not being necessarily a big fan of the franchise and just yeah, like what what do you <laughs> think? Separate it from your irrational hatred of the New York Knicks, but right. No, and I get my irrational hatred from this team because they they you know g- growing up or whatever. Obviously, you, you know you I'm watching Bulls games or whatever. It was hard not to hate these. My dad just loathed these teams because they would play them, and 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 obviously I was a little too young for those Detroit Pistons years, so I I, I probably would hate them more. Uh, but for me, it was growing up and watching those Knicks teams, and and I think the biggest thing for me was they just played such an ugly brand of basketball that it sort of annoyed me as a kid because I would sit down and watch, and they just weren't that fun of games. I was like, no, like come on, like they were they were they were they were more deliberate than I really wanted to at that time. You know, I really wanted kind of a quicker pace when I was watching. And to be fair, I mean, go, looking back now, a lot of the '90s basketball wasn't you know that it, it was very deliberate and very kind of slower. But the Knicks sort of uh, encapsulated that a little bit. Um, no, I mean overall, I mean I enjoy those teams, but they're they're just they're ugly teams. I mean they're they're uh, we have a running joke. My friends and I we play uh, the NBA 2K game, and and you know we do random teams sometimes. We do random classic teams, and whenever you get those Knicks teams, it's the worst because you just cannot score with them because they just have no scoring options. You you give it down to Ewing, and if Ewing doesn't score, you're just like, ah, damn it, <laughs> like. Like who else do I score? And that's that's sort of always the thought I remember of them is they played an ugly brand of basketball. They played you know sort of a a rough and tumble brand. It it, it was it, for its time it was interesting, and then it sort of I think I hated it a little bit more because then you know that we talk about ninety eight, ninety nine, two thousand, two thousand one, and that just every team was doing it. And it was just like oh god, like you know, it just sort of became what what Eastern Conference basketball was sort of represented as you, you know later in the nineties and and through the early two thousands. So. I'm much a bigger fan of what we have now and what we've had prior, but I, I, I get that that was important. And and to be fair, a lot of it was to counteract, you know, how good Michael Jordan was and how good a lot of these high flying guys were. It was like, look, you know, we don't have the talent. You know, in a lot of ways, they maximize what I would consider kind of a lack of talent. Those teams, I don't know if they're that talented. Yeah, but they were able to do a lot with it. Yeah, and it's interesting that you know the guy who you know, of course, became known for you know coaching showtime you know ended up yeah, kind of leading i love that yeah i love that aspect of a guy who changed and said okay look i and that's that's why i sort of mentioned the the, the talent because it's like look when i had magic and i had worthy and i had that yeah i could run and gun i'm not doing that with you guys like yeah. like we're we're an ugly bitch of guys let's sure. play an ugly brand like you know like we have guys like you mentioned like a starks who was kind of a journey you know anthony mason who's a journeyman he was able to fit those guys into those roles and 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 make it work and that's that's a testament to pat riley a lot and a testament to those guys to all buying in yeah to that style. and riley also you know inherited showtime you know so you sure. know and then they he kept it going because obviously it was it worked but he um you know i guess more naturally he was kind of that the the 90s were more of kind of a reflection of, of what he was or what you know what he kind of believed in as a basketball coach which is um, interesting. Yeah, I, I think there, there's one. Um, there's a a um, March or, or November 1994 New York Magazine feature that was linked from uh, Dan Devine at, at Blood Don't Lie, and it's got a great quote from Pat Riley. Uh, Anthony's what I'd call an oxymoron. He defies expectations. As a player, you look at Mace's size and court demeanor and think he's a blue collar banger, and he is. But he's also very nimble, can outrun people, and has superior ball handling skills. He's deft, almost cute. There's a bundle of contradictions <laughs> about him. He's versatile, unique in that way. And then uh, and then there's a, one little line that added, uh, maybe too unique for his own good. And that's that's a, I think it's a decent <laughs> way of summing up Anthony Nason. Um, yeah, because he annoys the hell out of me. Right, so. yeah. <laughs> like, uh, I said all this good stuff, but he still annoys me, so I want you to print that. So. <laughs> yeah, um, he, um, you know, the New York Times uh, obit talking about where um, – you know, he had a fearsome court persona, gave hard fouls, glared at opponents, badgered referees, and never shied away from a scuffle in or away from the arena. Um, 
His aggressiveness sometimes spilled over into a forearm to the throat or an elbow to the ribs. Um, so just, you know, talking about the just, you know, that was, you know, kind of how they played, kind of um, how they, um, you know, just I think he best reflected the Knicks of that time, you know, and, and it, you know, maybe in a sense, the Knicks were almost like a little bit of a correction to the high flying 80s in a sense. Like mm-hmm. that was just, you know, it was like kind of like the next wave that needed to happen for basketball to evolve even though it got ugly for a while it maybe it was what we needed to kind of get you know to the game to where where it is today in a sense you know because then we then we sort of follow that up with you know the the running gun mavericks and the suns or whatever so it's it, it's yeah. ebb and flow yeah exactly you always sort of have a reactionary of let's let's slow it down let's speed it up yeah. let's slow it down it's 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 you need that yeah so it wouldn't be any fun it wouldn't be any fun without no, it. no so. yeah and and i like having you know i like teams playing the different teams having different styles and and you know and and different waves that the the game kind of goes so that's always kind of interesting even if you know yeah i'm not always excited to watch a mid-90s uh um next game but um also you know one thing that stands out is the uh the hair graffiti the uh, you know he would get uh things shaved into his head like uh, mace or um ones i'm ready um there's uh, a the skyline yeah ex- there's a famous one yeah it, um you know or, or nicks or um you know he he had uh a number then there's a uh 90 90s jam.tumblr.com a uh sort of a nba in the 90s uh tumblr is um you know had, had a great post uh showing the which is an awesome tumblr by the way yeah from the design yeah. the design is spectacular if you're not go there right now it's the best design tumblr ever yeah it's pretty awesome because it's so. 90s because it's 90s and it's yes um and then, you know, kind of my favorite piece um, talking about um, all of this is by Robert Silverman, Daily Beast. Robert's been a guest on our show and um, talking about you just kind of like how he as a New Yorker felt about the Knicks at the time and that, um, you know, kind of the anger that he Anthony Mason had and, you know, the Knicks kind of represented sort of represented like his attitude and his feelings kind of about being a New Yorker and, and all that. And then sort of like looking at that later as, you know, as an older adult and kind of, you know, his, his feelings, yeah, having mixed feelings about that. But I, I, I just, some really good thoughts there and, and definitely the piece I really recommend everyone uh, check out. We'll, we'll, we'll link to it in the show notes. Um, mm-hmm. Although it's been around, a lot of people I'm sure have read it, but um, it, I think the, the best thing is that the product on the quote uh, on the court was ugly is undeniable. It was a glowering, sweaty, sweaty scrum masquerading as basketball but that, too, seemed to be a New York response to Michael Jordan's poetry. Mean streets transcribed into the hardwood, literally. You want to score against in the paint against Mason and the equally fear-inspiring duo of Ewing and Charles Oakley? Fine, but you're going to be on the receiving end of a few scars for your trouble. <laughs> and uh, the last words I will give... Chicago. No mean streets in Chicago. Oh, so. well, you know, you, you got to gotta have the New York, uh, you know. No, I, I know. That, that's I think every team has that. Because, like, every major city has, like, an area. So they always sort of mention, like, anytime yeah. there's, like, a hard-nosed guy. Where, basically, wherever Charles Oakley goes, it's like, well, he, you know, he represents the yeah, hard nose. Yes. Hard nose of Toronto. So, sure, you know. Sure, That's fine. No, I, 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 it's a great piece. Absolutely. I just always, that's just kind of a narrative. Like, every newspaper writer does that. Like, a, a player that hustles and grinds is a representative of, like, a factory somewhere in your city or whatever like everybody's got it yeah. like every city's kind of the same people it's yeah. like it's it's i get well, it like well i mean i don't i mean you know they're it, yeah 
this is a better discussion for later, but I, I get what you're <laughs> I want it now. No, no, I, I get what he's saying. Yeah, too, but I um, but Chicago wasn't really all sunshine in the 90s. That, either, that's so. true. That's true. Um, so um, and uh, and and Raphael Canton of the uh, NBA trades Tumblr, who we had I also had a guest in the show. Um, he uh, tracked down a great quote from Anthony Mason in his roundup of the Anthony Mason, Larry Johnson trade. And uh, Mason said, uh, New York is one of those places where people get tired of you quick. The fans weren't tired of me, but management got tired. They knew I came to play every night, and that's what they paid me for. Management wanted me to be Mr. Clean, but they do their own things, too. Nobody's perfect. I put myself in situations that I probably shouldn't have. If you want a person who is smiling all the time, the nicest person in the world, then I can be difficult to coach. If you want a person who doesn't vote his opinion, I'm very difficult. So... Just like, you know, he wanted to be, he wanted to do what he wanted to do on his own terms. Yeah. Got to respect that, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, so anything else, Rich? Not really. Um, yeah, I mean, Anthony Mason, I, I have a lot of, you know, I remember growing up with him, but, it, but as you said, my sort of what I always remembered him as and, and, and possibly unfairly, and that could be, you know, my age as well. And, and, you know, obviously now that I've watched a lot, a lot of Anthony Mason, watch videos or whatever, I, I respect him more. But, you know, as you mentioned, you know, we're starting this or when I think of Anthony Mason before maybe I did this podcast, it would be the rough and tumble, the, the pushing, the shoving, the, 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 the rebounds, that sort of stuff is the, what I always remembered of him. But he is a lot more than that. He was an absolutely and, and especially that if you can seek it out that Charlotte Hornets game that you're mentioning and I think you can look it up like Anthony Mason Charlotte Hornets career hires you know something like that you can find it it really shows you that yeah he was that to an extent but he was way I mean he was just so as as that Pat Riley quote said he was nimble too he was like a very finesse guy like like in that game alone and even in possessions you see that he takes the ball up and he's very careful about you know who he's going to pass to or whatever but then when it's time to post he's just banging into guys or whatever and the next possession he's kind of slowing it down again and going quiet and it's it's fun to see that it's just a weird weird vibe that you get from him which is is interesting and it made him a unique player and and i love the stories of journeymen that become you know, rotational guys and especially guys that will end up becoming all-stars. I think it's a, the coolest thing ever is that this guy, you know, you never give up. You, you, you go to Venezuela, you go the USBL, you go to the CBA and then eventually you make it and then you stick and you stick for a long time. That That's really cool. I always, I always love those stories. Yeah. He, um, also, um, he, uh, was, uh, after retirement was definitely heavily involved in his uh, son's lives. They uh, two of his sons played uh, basketball. Uh, Anthony Mason Jr. played for St. John's. Uh, his other son, Antoine, played at Auburn, then transferred to Niagara University um, and um, was apparently the second leading scorer in the NCAA as a junior behind only Doug McDermott. So, <laughs> um, yeah, um, so. Yeah, I, I, I'm glad we got a chance to, you know, talk about uh, all three men who were, you know, in their own way, made their mark on uh, NBA history. And it's obviously one of the fun things we like to uh, do about these sh- this show, even though it's uh, under sad circumstances. But, um, yeah, it's it's uh, good stuff. So. Uh, so anyway, we, uh, you can find us at the podiumgame.com where we would love to, uh, hear from you. If you want to uh, leave a comment in the, uh, on the post at the podiumgame.com, you can also, um, tweet us, uh, at over and back NBA on Twitter. And, uh, we also have a Facebook page, which you can find, um, uh, facebook.com slash over and back NBA. And, um, 
we uh, there's you can check out the Hardwood Paroxysm Network iTunes feed, which has our show and many other great shows that you can also find at the Podium Game on it. Um, so uh, check that out. Leave a leave a rating and a comment on iTunes if you're into what we do, and we would uh, greatly appreciate that. And um, let's see, did I forget anything, Rich? Uh, that's it. Over and back NBA.com. If you want, we're uh, it's our, our blog that we're trying to get off the ground a little bit. Obviously, yeah. it's taking a little bit of time to do it, but we're going to get into a flow eventually yeah. here. But uh, over and back NBA.com, we do some blogs here and there. We talk, uh, we do team facts, it's a, a series you started, and I've kind of gotten into and done a few here and there. We kind of look at a team, you know, the, the, the most important players of that team, the most important, you know, figures of that team. So, it, yeah. it, fun stuff just there. Fun we'll look at players, look at, at, at stuff, you know, <clears throat> just some trivia and some fun, you know. Yeah, and, and we're going to try to do a lot more of that, but obviously it, it, it's hard to kind of juggle time and, and all that sort of stuff, but it, it's a plan, but for sure you can go to overbackmba.com for all that as well. Yeah, so. yeah, cool. Well, um, thank you, Rich, again for uh, for doing this with me. I always uh, appreciate your insight into, uh, in, into this stuff. It's uh, good to do a podcast with you. Absolutely. Thank you. All right, everyone. And uh, thanks for uh, listening and uh, keep checking us out. We'll have more to you soon. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.